Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Today, City Lights celebrates Juneteenth. Harpist Angelica Hairston founded Challenge the Stats to advocate for BIPOC artists and create opportunities of empowerment through the performing arts. She's also an accomplished classical musician, as well as an active harp educator, speaker, and global performing artist. Together with Challenge the Stats artistic director and conductor, Verena Lucia Anders, Angelica Hairston will tell us about String Awakening, Challenge the Stats Juneteenth performance of music, dance, and drumming influenced by the African diaspora. First, Atlanta native Carlos Simon is an acclaimed composer whose latest work is Requiem for the Enslaved. The piece has been recorded for the DECA label, and the album is being released today in observance of the Juneteenth federal holiday. Carlos Simon is the composer in residence for the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts and teaches composition at Georgetown University. He joins us now via Zoom. Carlos, welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. It's such an honor to be here. You are a music professor at Georgetown. Why did the university commission this piece? Well, when I uh, got the job at Georgetown, I, of course, was trying to do my due diligence to understand the culture of the university. It's, you know, Georgetown University, it's steeped in tradition and, and has such a rich heritage. And as a new professor, I really wanted to understand that culture and the history. And of course, discovering this history of the founders of the university uh, owning and selling slaves who were Jesuits. And as an African-American, you know, it really was uh, hit me. It resonated with me. And as an artist, I, I wanted to respond to this in a musical way. And of course, there was already work happening around the huge sale that happened in 1838. The founders of the, of the university sold 
total of 272 slaves of humans and women and children and men. So that it, this it is all archived um, and as a bill of sale, I found this history and, and, and wanted to join in the conversation in a musical way. And, and so the how, that's how the piece came about. It, it was daunting to take the task on, you know, and to take that journey. But, you know, I had a lot of help and it's, it was a quite a big journey and a big task. But I am really grateful that, you know, I had the support of the university to write this piece. It's almost incomprehensible. It is incomprehensible to think that the founders of the university decided to sell enslaved humans for $115,000 to rescue the university from bankruptcy. How you can possibly put a dollar value on a on life is so difficult to unpack. Georgetown is a Catholic university. Is that why you wrote this piece in the form of the traditional Catholic Requiem Mass? When I started the piece, I didn't know how to start. I knew that I wanted to honor these these women and children and men, but I just didn't know a way in. So I, I went to I wanted to start with spirituals, you know, African-American spirituals, which are very much a part of who I am growing up in Atlanta and, and uh, attending Morehouse College. And, and I, I heard the spirituals. And of course, it, 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 spirituals are always going to be a part of the piece. But understanding the tradition of the Jesuits who own these humans and who founded the university, I said, OK, this this is another way. In, you know, and and of course, the Catholic Church has a huge musical tradition and this work, as you know, is the great masters have used this art form, Mozart, you know, it's one of my favorite requiems. I was drawn to the art form. It's like, okay, let's, I want to use this, at least the structure of it, but let's embed these spirituals, you know, African-American spirituals into it and using the same musical structure. So you blend African-American spirituals, spoken word, hip-hop, and jazz styles within a Western classical music context. Please tell us about the text. There are different parts that are pretty much mainstays in the art form, and I wanted to keep that, you know, in the piece. So you have the Kyrie Eleison, which Lord have mercy. Let us go. Set us free. Let us go. Set us free. Lord, have mercy on my soul. Set us free, make us whole. Lord, have mercy on my soul. Set us free. This is not a world created by God. This is a country created by mobs. Kill, pillage, freedom, robbed. We were stolen, no time to sob. Taken to a foreign land. Feet chained, shackled hands. The lawless made the laws. The devil made God's plan. But, you know, and embedded into these interludes and different between the movements, I wanted to, of course, pay homage to um, the women and men who were and, and children who were sold, but also, you know, let's talk about the issue of slavery and how it's linked to systematic racism in this country. And 
that's embedded into the text um, that my good friend, um, Marco Pave, who also served as George, Georgetown's artist in residence. And then we collaborated on texts that would both, you know, of course, honor these, these humans, but also let's talk about the issues at hand, you know, and then and make it relevant to our society today. Is it Marco who performs on the recording? Yes, he's performing well with uh, another good friend, Jared Bailey, who is playing trumpet. And we uh, also collaborated with a Boston-based ensemble called Hub New Music. Musicians are wonderful, as is Marco Pave. From the very outset, we're moved by names spoken. Isaac, Charles, Nellie. There's a trumpet theme reminiscent of taps. What else shall we listen for in the opening section? I was looking at the bill of sale and, and I went to the archives at Georgetown and looking at the original documents, handwritten. And these names, you know, just it just came to life to me. And, and you could see the humanity in the names. Isaac. 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 65 years old. Charles. Isaac's son. Isaac's son. Ran away. Isaac's son. Ran away. Ran away. Even though it's just basically names, you know, Isaac, Isaac, 65 years old, you know, and then at the next line is Charles, Isaac's son, ran away. And so I wanted to capture that humanity of, you know, of lots of information that tells small details that tells a big story. And so musically speaking, you we think about the music of, of the time, these people were sold to a plantation in Marywood, Louisiana. And of course, you know, it's a, it's a little, maybe an hour and a half outside of Baton Rouge. But we know Louisiana to be a state that's, it's steeped in musical tradition too. You know, of course, jazz was birthed there. And, and, and so going back to that correlation between African-American music, but also the music of the Catholic church, going all, went all the way back to the Gregorian chant, the Requiem's, and there's a movement in Paradisium. So the first three notes of that section in Paradisium are also the first three notes of when the saints go marching in. Yes, and that recurs in your Requiem. Part two, Let Us Go, begins with a bell ringing. Lord have mercy recurs. Would you talk about blending hip hop with chamber strings? Two different worlds, right? <laughs> yeah, but it works. <laughs> yeah, and that's something that we we I really wanted to make it a point to to include hip hop and rap because it I do believe it it's it is the music of our time. If you think about the acoustic instruments that are steeped in the classical tradition, that they, they are this timeless. So bringing these two again, these two traditions together, uh, was important for me with this piece. Set us free. Lord have mercy on my soul, set us free, make us whole. Lord have mercy on my soul, 
set us free. Using the timeless tradition of, of classical music, but also music of our time, you know, hip hop and a spoken word. So I, I wanted to bring these two tra traditions together. Hmm. Part three, the Curie has lyrical string melodies punctuated by winds. Did you intend for those winds to sound like screams? Yeah, so that's that's what I wanted. I wanted, imagine if, you know, when evoking those, those, the spirits of those who were enslaved, what would they say to us? I'm not sure, but I, I'd imagine there would be some sense of anger there, a sense of frustration. And I wanted to embody that in that, that anger. And so, you know, I have the, the winds and the, the, the violin and the cello, you know, that's basically in a high register. It's sort of screeching. And that's the embodiment of that. I want to embody the, the the invocation, if you will, of those old enslaved spirits. If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. My guest is Atlanta-born composer Carlos Simon. He is now a professor at Georgetown University. The text in part four really moved me. A runaway slave is a crime for the brave. We're back with Isaac here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's you think about it. It's, you have to have a lot of courage, you know, to to run away from something that could kill you, you know, and that's even unthinkable to to actually consider the fact that one, they were not humans, and I considered humans, and two, also just like why were they running away? You know, it's obviously, you know, they being, you know, the family being taken away from their family. And it's a lot of courage. It takes a lot of courage to go against the grain of being told that you were not human. And, and of course, you know, Marco, he, he puts us in, in his text, you know, is a runaway slave is a crime for the brave. Please give me death instead of new chains. How provocative. It is so powerful. You come by the gospel music tradition, honestly, with your father being a minister. And you pay full tribute to New Orleans style in part five with the way you invoke when the saints go marching in. And then you call forth the song again in part 11 with light everlasting. Light. Everlasting shine upon them, O oh Lord. 
with saints of thine for all eternity. Rest eternal, grant to them, O Lord, and light perpetual. Shine upon them with saints of thine for all eternity. Shine upon them, O Lord, light everlasting. Shine upon them. Why can't you set the second version as a soothing piano solo? Well, I really wanted to, I mean, it's a beautiful melody, right? This, when the saints go marching in, it's, it's a gorgeous melody, but it's always heard in the very celebratory way, upbeat tempo. But I, I wanted to slow it down. Let's slow it all the way down and really think about the text, you know, and the melody and, and just embody that that melody in as much as possible. And so, of course, I, I there's a reharmonization of the, the song and of course Jared plays the you know the trumpet line beautifully and, you know there's some improvisation there too but I, I really wanted to slow things down you know and this really think about oh how I want to be in that number when the saints go marching in hmm. part six we all found heaven raises and repeats the question how does the soul feel about waiting to be free. I was struck by the fact that what's being asked for in the context of a traditional requiem tragically doesn't even apply in terms of the word liberate me, free me. Would you talk about Marco's setting here. How does the soul feel about waiting to be free? Well, our collaboration was <laughs> liberating, I will say, you know, because we, we actually wrote this piece over the pandemic. So we weren't in the same room at all. And I would send him clips of music. Of course, Marco is by trade, he's a rapper, you know, hip hop rapper. So I would send him just small clips of, of music just to see if he could find anything, you know, be inspired by the music. And on top of that, I, I would just kind of lead him in a way of, okay, let's, I want to talk about this, this particular topic of liberation in this particular section. And that's what happened with this particular, you know, movement. We all found heaven. I, I told him, you know, I, let's, I want to talk about the idea of liberation. When I found I had crossed that line, I looked at my hands to see if I was the same person. There was such glory over everything. What does it mean for your soul if your body was never free? What happens to the soul of the slave if the shackles release? Slave in the flesh, the soul has yet to face an adequate test. And I let him go, you know, he, and he just, he, this is what he came up with. And, and I was so over the moon because it's actually, was one of the first pieces that he, you know, sent back to me after I sent him that initial music. And I was just blown away by just the depth of what he 
created, but also just how deeply connected it is to the traditional text uh, in the Requiem. But it's telling a different story. You know, it's telling it. It's a different way. There's a line in this particular movement that it really hit me in a different way and it resonated with me. And it says, persevering for 400 years, persistent with tears, a determined people, a beautiful brethren at the bottom of patience. We all found heaven. Hmm. The Liberame portion of Requiem Mass is about deliverance. What can you tell us about Deliver Me in Requiem for the Enslaved? This particular movement is, it's all instrumental and, and the, the instrumentation is, it's not standard, you know, so I have a, a violin, I have a flute and a cello and a clarinet, so very atypical instrumentation. It's their, that's the name of the ensemble, and they're really amazing musicians. Uh, with, with this particular text, gosh, I, I wanted to. It's you listen to it, and there's weight to it. It's the you see these. It's of course it starts in the high register, but there's some chords there at the beginning that that I wanted to have some sense of of heaviness, some weight to it. You know, so the text you deliver me, O Lord, from death eternal on that fearful day. That's you know fear, and and there's so much. Uh, the heaviness there. And I, I imagine that. So I wanted to put that into the music. Um, and so you hopefully will hear that in this particular section. Part 16 is very powerful. Will you describe Shine Upon Them? So this was the last thing we, we recorded in the studio uh, last May. We recorded in Boston. Where we recorded was actually in renovated church. The studio was an old church, so it really felt like we were embodying this piece, you know, the Requiem. And, and to be honest with you, I had not written this particular movement until we got to the studio that week. I knew that we had to have some sense of culmination and reflection of what had what we've heard you know, throughout the piece. There was there was a moment in the, the recording session where we all sort of took a break and went our separate ways. And of course, Marco came back with this text, you know, and he recited it for me. And I was just like, wow, man, this is amazing. And of course, I went to the piano and I, I wrote something for it. And, and what you hear is what we came up with in a few hours. upon them you know it's it, it really is about granting 
those ancestors of mine at, at some rest, granting them rest. And he, Marco is, he of course brings it home by talking about, you know, what's happening today, you know, writing the constitution while breaking the 10 commandments. That line, you know, is, is just so, you know, profound. Writing the Constitution while breaking the Ten Commandments is unforgettable. Yeah, and and I think that's that's what we were talking about here. You know, we, you know, we have these laws, but what does it mean to really be human? The humanity of it, of owning people. How can you own a person? What is significant here in the into paradise section about repeating the word? Ashe. Ashe, Ashe, that, that is African. I think of it as, as an African amen, you know, or, you know, it's like you're putting a blessing on, on, on the piece or signing and sealing the uh, uh, declaration. Chained in unspeakable and devastating bondage, the Lord heard your cries and answered your prayers with a beautiful surprise. A covenant that shall not be altered, hidden, or broken. An eternal I say to the spirits of the enslaved. A seat next to God for you has been made. I say. I say. I say. I say. And that's what we I wanted to do is that of course repeat this. Uh, at the end of the, of the piece, it's a declaration. It's a it's a it's stamp. You know, so we are declaring. You know, grant them rest, and grant our ancestors rest in this piece. Carlos, what has been the reaction from others at Georgetown University? Have you given the recording, or has the work been performed for? the administration, for your department chair and faculty? So, of course, we haven't performed it live just yet, but we did do a, a virtual uh, performance of it, which was streamed by the Library of Congress last November. And so that was our sort of premiere, if you will, world premiere. There are plans to tour the piece, at, of course, and we're going to start here in D.C. Uh, and, and, and do a performance this fall at Georgetown University. And we'll do a performance at the Kennedy Center as well. It's such a educational work, you know. We, so there are some plans to, to visit, um, do some residencies at universities. And, and that will, of course, include some educational components to the work. Will Atlanta be in your plans? We're hoping for that, yes. We would love to go to the, have a performance in Atlanta and definitely the AU Center is where it is. It's my home. That's That has to happen. Carlos, what impact has writing this music had upon your life and worldview? Well, you know, Lois, this piece has been a way for me to really, really understand my heritage and to pay tribute to the legacy of my ancestors. And I've always wanted to pay tribute to those who came before me in my music, in my life, because I, I know I didn't get here on my own. 
composer Carlos Simon. More information about his Juneteenth release, Requiem for the Enslaved, is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll hear about String Awakening, an upcoming performance from Challenge the Stats and their Juneteenth Orchestra. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. A celebratory concert for Juneteenth will be performed tomorrow evening at First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta. String Awakening is presented by Challenge the Stats an organization that empowers classical musicians of color through concerts and workshops. The Juneteenth musical event features a BIPOC orchestra of professional and student musicians. The founder and executive director of Challenge the Stats, Angelica Hairston, joins me now via Zoom with Challenge the Stats, Juneteenth Orchestra, Artistic Director and Conductor, Verena Lucia Anders. Welcome to City Lights. Thanks, Lois. It's great to be here with you. Angelica, before we talk about the concert, please tell us more about the organization, Challenge the Stats, and why you created it. Absolutely. Well, growing up in Atlanta as a young Black harpist, I was always uh, really grateful to be in a city with such rich diversity. I was also a student of the talent development program through the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. And it was a powerful community to be surrounded by other musicians who looks like me, which is not always the case when we're looking on the broader classical music space. And so I went off to my undergraduate degree. I was studying at the Royal Conservatory of Music in Toronto. Uh, Very, very cold, very different from Atlanta. (laughs) And while I was there, there was a lot that was happening and coming to the surface in the United States. And in particular, the murder of Trayvon Martin happened while I was doing my undergraduate degree. 
And I remember as a harpist, you know, practicing all of this classical music that I adored, that I loved. And I also saw what was happening to and towards African-American people in the United States. And I really had to reconcile what it meant for me to be a classical musician who adores this art form and also an African-American person myself, someone who was from this community that was really directly being targeted in my own home country. And that was the time when I started to ask some deep questions of myself and start to explore what it would look like for classical music to have a voice in the areas of justice for communities of color. So Challenge the Stats uh, was born in 2016. And ever since then, we've been continuing to create programming that not only celebrates artists of color, but really uses music as a tool and as a voice to speak truth to some of the challenges around justice for communities of color in our country. When we spoke in 2018, I was stunned to read that only 4.2% of orchestral musicians in the U.S. are Black or Latinx, and that only 8.3% of U.S. orchestral staff are Black or Latinx. Do you know if those numbers have since increased? There has been very little movement on those numbers uh, from the time that the studies were done by the League of American Orchestras until today. And there have been many initiatives and there have been many ways that people have tried to go about addressing the statistics. And as a musician of color myself, and I'm sure Verena has experienced this as well, you feel that, you feel those statistics, you feel being the only person on stage in an orchestra and looking out at an audience and not seeing yourself represented. And so Challenge the Stats was really this initiative to say, we can perform together and create a space where no one is kind of singled out or, or feels that they are in a space where they're not surrounded by others who have had a similar experience in the classical music world. Mm, especially when you have contributed so much. I mean, the representation ought to be there. Verena, would you take us through the different composers represented on the program, or if you could highlight some of the composers whose works will be played? Absolutely. Well, we have quite the array of different styles of music and different composers from different eras and different parts of the world, all that are influenced by the African diaspora. I would like to take a second to highlight Jesse Montgomery, whose works are beginning to be performed by major orchestras. She's just such an inspiration and her music is always very refreshing. And in this particular piece, she wrote this for the Sphinx Virtuosi, part of the Sphinx Ensemble and the Sphinx Organization, which empowers Black and Latinx classical musicians on the stage.
she's really bringing out all of the dynamics, being very imaginative in a musical way, but also really catering to the strengths of the ensemble and the strengths of these particular players. We also have, of course, an elegy, A Cry from the Grave by Carlos Simon, which I think we all felt should be part of this program in particular. And we have a couple of novelettes by Samuel Coleridge Taylor. fun pieces and I wanted to include them too to highlight a historic black composer who was really trained in Europe but began to be aware of his own cultural heritage and bring that into his music and we will be ending the program with a, a piece by Guido Lopez Gavilan who is a Cuban composer and it really brings together both the classical ensemble mixed in with all of the wonderful, colorful rhythms and dance moves from the Cuban culture. read that that piece also incorporates West African Yoruba traditions. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. So the rhythm and the, and the style of the wawanko, which is a type of rumba, is often also obviously incorporates some dance, some movement, and some singing, some call and response. So we're bringing in a special ensemble to really bring that out in the context of this piece. I saw in the program that Tulani Vareen will perform a dance. Yes, that is correct. We wanted to incorporate, we love working with different artistic forms, and we thought this would be a perfect piece to allow a different expression, a different artistic expression and interpretation from a Black dancer in response to and hopefully feeling moved with the sounds of this piece. I saw that you have dance in your background as well. Yes, yes, I have. No less than Alvin Ailey. Can we talk about some serious credit here? <laughs> well, thank you so much. Yes, I, I began dancing as, as early as I began studying music and 
by the time I finished college, I wanted to still try to pursue dance as long as my body could could withstand it. And I studied at the Alvin Ailey School and spent some time there. And it was an amazing, amazing experience. And I believe that being a dancer makes me even a better musician, to be honest. How so? Dancing is is often a response to the music and you can feel the music internally. So I definitely feel grounded, like I have an inner, I have the music kind of playing in my body and my body responds. It also helps me, I think, be a good intuitive conductor. But the two are tied together. Uh, you kind of can't have dance without the music. And it just really brings a deeper connectivity. Angelica, what can you tell us about your role in tomorrow's performance? Sure. So tomorrow I will be performing. So as a harpist, I wanted to make sure we had some harp included in our string orchestra. And one of the pieces that I will be performing is by Connor Chi. And that work is really powerful and poignant for me. Over the the time of 2020, when we were all kind of stuck in the house, I really started to look at the ways that Native American communities and African American communities had such a shared struggle for freedom in this country. And uh, it was really powerful to to talk with Connor and to collaborate with him. Uh, And I'm excited to be performing this piece alongside the student musicians, many of whom are coming from the talent development program of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. It's such an important program. And seeing the musician you've become and the activist you've become, it's so gratifying. I mean, what an ambassador you are, Angelica. Oh, thank you, Lois. It's been it's been such a journey, and I think this program in particular is so poignant for me. I was in Ghana about a year ago doing some research there, and I remember standing at Elmina Castle, which is kind of the last place that a lot of Africans were able to put their feet on the ground before they were loaded onto ships. And I remember this moment of realizing that African-American history did not start in enslavement. It started with a powerful people. It started with cultures from really across a continent coming together. And even in the midst of that struggle, making such incredible art and music and song that influenced music across the globe. And so I'm excited for this program to really highlight the ways that a people influenced across the world. Angelica Hairston, founder and executive director of Challenge the Stats. She was joined by the Juneteenth Orchestra Artistic Director and Conductor Verena Lucia Anders. String Awakening is tomorrow evening at First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. As we head into the Juneteenth weekend, let's listen back to some of my conversation with the Pulitzer Prize-winning author and scholar Annette Gordon-Reed. Her book, On Juneteenth, 
weaves together American history and personal memoir to recount our country's long road to Juneteenth. The distinguished Harvard professor joined me via Zoom last June, and here she describes how growing up in Texas informed her work as a historian. Well, I think growing up in Texas made me think about the past because the results of the past, uh, the legacies of the past were all around me. I began life in a town that was still segregated. I was born in Livingston, Texas, that was segregated. And then when I was about six months old, my parents moved to Conroe, Texas, where I grew up. And I had the experience as a six-year-old of integrating our town's schools. It made me think about why that was a big deal. <laughs> you know, what, what is the big deal about people of different colors going to school together? And why would that ever have been a problem? Also, why when we went to the doctor, there was a separate waiting room for uh, black people and white people. And when we went to the movies, we had to sit in the balcony. What was that all about? Uh, people to me were people. And why were these divisions there? So I do think it was my first opportunity to think about how the past informs the present. And that led me on a road to becoming a historian, I believe. A dedicated teacher. And you write most eloquently about education as an expression of race uplift, that becoming educated was an act of resistance. Would you tell us more about your own childhood education beginning at age six, as you touched upon a moment ago, and what school desegregation meant for your community in Conroe, Texas? Well, I should say that my education began before I got to school. My mother read to us uh, every night and made reading and literature, the idea of literature alive. I was well prepared when I went to school for what I was going to encounter and I was eager to do so because she either instilled in me a love of learning or recognized that I had it and sought to cultivate it as much as possible because she was a teacher. She could order workbooks. She knew how to order workbooks and so forth. And so we had this unfortunate thing to me when we were little of uh, going to school in the summer <laughs> for the beginning of the summer, at least in the mornings. So this education early on was something that was seen as important to me. And when I went to Anderson, uh, I think it made my integration of the school into the school easier because I was a good student. I didn't cause any problems. I'm a basically even-tempered person. So I didn't give them any problems. And my teachers, Mrs. Daughtry, my first grade teacher and my second grade teacher, these are, I think, are the really formative years there at Anderson, were wonderful uh, to me. And I don't wonder if it was not, in part, not just because they were great human beings, but because my mother was a teacher. And there may have been some sense of camaraderie there, but they were great to me. Some of the kids were good and some not. 
I had the experience of, and this is something else that made me think about race and think about the past and the present. People who would be very friendly to me at school, if I saw them out with their families other places, they would be cool uh, toward me. They might not really acknowledge our connection. And I wondered about why that was the case. And I understood that they knew, because you can tell when people genuinely like you, and I, and I think they did, but they also loved their parents and their siblings. And they were part of families where if it were known that they were friendly to me or that they liked me, they would get in trouble. So that too made me think about what's going on here in this society. You're sort of walking through these things that are puzzling and you can't quite get your arms around but you know there's something there. And I have always, since that time period, been trying to think about you know, that particular question, how people separate themselves in that way. It's an awful lot for a child to have to deal with. Yeah, yes, it, it is. But kids around the world deal with much worse than that. I had parents who loved me. I had my brothers, I had loving grandparents and an immediate community that was supportive of me. And I think that that was, that nourished me and sustained me. Thinking about a line of strong, intelligent women from Texas, some in the more popular imagination of mm -hmm. the journalist Molly Ivins, Governor Ann Richards, a bit more serious and closer to your own level of contributions, Barbara Jordan. Why is patriarchy central to the story of Texas? Well, you know, that's a, that's a very good question, but patriarchy has been the center of a lot of things. And you're right. I mean, to have these strong women who are noted Texans and have represented the state very, very well, uh, they are archetypes of Texas as well, but that's, there's still this barrier uh, where people think of this as, where the patriarchy controls a lot of this, and people think of males as the, as the natural leaders in these places. I think it might be changing. I hope it's changing. Uh, I certainly, uh, the political situation in Texas now where people are fighting over voting and what can be put in the history books, might have an opportunity to change all of that and to make it not just as these are sort of exceptional people, but to understand that there are a lot of you know, strong women in Texas and male leadership is not, should not be the default. Scholar and Pulitzer Prize winning author Annette Gordon-Reed. You can hear our full conversation about her book on Juneteenth via our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. A concert by the Atlanta Freedom Bands honors women composers tomorrow evening at the Church on Ponce and Highland. Hear Us Roar celebrates the centennial of the women's suffrage movement, which led to the passage of the 19th Amendment to the Constitution in 1920. The concert was originally scheduled for June of 2020, but postponed for two years due to COVID-19. 
The band will also perform a composition by one of their students in the AFB Student Composer Residency Program. Louis A. Josephson. The pre-concert presentation begins at 7 p.m. with the concert starting at 8 p.m. More information is on their website at latafreedombands.com. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tuesday at 11 a.m., Multidisciplinary artist Jamel Wright Sr. will tell us about his exhibition Project Wall West on view at the Zuckerman Museum of Art at Kennesaw State University. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Light senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.